Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. Now your hosts. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Hyperion Hub. I'm John Alois and joined by Sean Degenhart. How you doing? And John Redling Schaefer. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Before we start, I just want to remind you, we are on all the major social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter, we're at Hub Hyperion. You can email us at podcast at the Hyperion Hub Com. You can also send us a voice-recorded message there. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us so more people find the show. We're going to start our show off with our Disney view, and for that, I'm throwing it over to Sean. Yeah, well, it was recently announced that Disney is developing a universe of Magic Kingdom TV shows for Disney+. Plus. Um, they have really been um, just jumping out of the gate with these wonderful new TV shows for Disney+. Plus. And this sounds very interesting and a little bit different um, from what they've done in the past. Um, it says the first of these shows will be the Society of Explorers and Adventurers, uh, described as being set in a world where all the themed lands and characters of the Disney parks and classic films actually exist in another reality. So it sounds like they could be bringing some characters from some of our favorite attractions. You know, maybe there's a Big Thunder Mountain Wild West episode, or maybe there's an addition where we head into space with, you know, Tomorrowland and Space Mountain. Um, it's going to be directed by Ron Moore, who directed many of the Star Trek episodes, TV episodes, and Battlestar Galactica. So I think there's a lot of great possibilities and a lot of different possibilities with this series. Yeah, Disney nerds uh, right up our alley, for sure. This sounds like a great anthology series, and that article is on The Hollywood Reporter. Thanks, Sean. Joining us this week is a Disney fan, a big Disney fan, who's made a goal of watching every single Disney film ever made. He's through the 1970s, which is roughly 140 films to date. Tim Sanderford joins us on the Hyperion Hub. Welcome, Tim. Thanks. It's great to be here. So how did this all come about? What made you want to do this? Right now, it seems like this would be a COVID project. <laughs> like, you know, I suddenly had all this free time on my hands, but it's simpler than that. And it's earlier than that. Uh, I really started with the creation of the Disney Plus service uh, when they announced that it was coming. Uh, at one point, they had this video montage that they had put together of like, you know, flash in a few seconds of each title, uh, you know, footage from each film that was going to be up. And I knew that there was going to be exclusive stuff that I wanted, but as a family, we had not really decided to, to get the service uh, and to make that financial commitment. So when they put that video out that said, you know, look at all the stuff from our back catalog that you've been missing. <laughs> I said, you know, this, maybe something that I want to do beyond just the new content that, that will be there. So, you know, I had my own personal favorites that I was looking forward to maybe revisiting that for whatever reason we had not purchased. We do have a, a sizable DVD collection, uh, but I knew this was going to expand me beyond that with favorites. And then also I realized there were a lot of titles that I had missed. Um, so I, I really didn't have the idea 
then, but like that was the spark is seeing these titles pop up. And then once we did actually get on Disney plus, you know, you, you go to the search section and there's these little themed things underneath. And one of them was through the decades. And I saw that and I clicked on it and I, looked through you know their listed decade by decade and it starts with a lot of the shorts and so i just i knew when we started disney plus i wanted to sit the whole family down and watch steamboat willie before anything else <laughs> like it's sort of you know you got to christen the the streaming service so we did that but then i just kept going and i i kept watching the shorts and it was you know you can fit those in and little small bits of free time uh, and then as I did that, I said, I really just want to keep this going. And I was, um, you know, researching after that and naively thinking that the majority of the films would be there on Disney+. Plus. And <laughs> as I found up until the 70s, I would say 45% of them are not. Uh, so it did eventually, once I got on Wikipedia and looked around and started, you know, planning ahead and saying, well, this is what I need soon. Once I finish these, I was going to the public library primarily because that was the least expensive option. And if they didn't have it there, YouTube, mm -hmm. Amazon prime, stuff like that. And I was, I was cherry picking. I don't have Amazon prime. So I'm, you know, picking them off two ninety nine or three ninety nine at a time. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I had to go a couple of towns over at times to find them at a library or yeah, YouTube has a few movies for, for some reason. So were you always a Disney fan? I would say I was a Disney fan to a certain extent. It was sprinkled in with a lot of other interests when I was a kid. Uh, I was born in 75. So uh, film wise, I was into some of the random things i was a, a fan of world's greatest athlete when i was a kid oh. uh snowball express um i would say my the majority of my interests were star wars the muppets things that weren't disney yet yeah. <laughs> but eventually disney wanted to do what i was doing so they bought those properties that's all i can figure uh, so, yeah, I mean, I have remnants of memories of early Disney stuff. I, I remember having a poster of the the Lisa Welchel batch of Mouseketeers, um, but I don't really remember much other than that poster. Uh, I have that, old... Her version of the Mouseketeers is on Disney Plus, by the way, when they visit Walt I Disney World. I did see that, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I, I got curious when I saw that was up, and I don't remember anything else except that you know, Blair from Facts of Life was <laughs> on my wall. So, yeah. But yeah, I wasn't really a Marvel kid, so I can't claim that new property either. But um, we were we were watching Disney films on Betamax when I was a kid. We uh, we thought that was going to be the wave of the future. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, at the time, we weren't purchasing things back then. To buy a new movie when it came out was like eighty bucks or something right. ridiculous. So. Uh, we would rent them, I guess, and we may even have just, my dad was a pastor, and we may have just borrowed the church machine to watch them <laughs> at home, for all I know. But so, I just remember wearing out World's Greatest Athlete and Snowball Express, but not really the classics. Like, I wasn't a, a Pinocchio, Snow White, Bambi kind of kid. Um, those titles, some of those were 
really new to me through this wow. experience. I mean, I knew the stories, I knew the characters, I knew the, the the highlights, but having watched it from start to finish was just not a part of my past. You know, I, I started this process about four or five years ago, and I'm only watching the ones that I have not seen. So there's a lot that I that I hadn't seen um, from the from the 50s and the 60s and into the 70s. Let's kind of break down the decades. So were you surprised or were there any um, shockers for you uh, starting way back? You said you you didn't grow up with the animated films and, and you sat down and finally watched them. Um, the 30s and 40s are mostly animated. So w- w- was there anything that stuck out there? Yeah, I, actually the 40s when I have gone through these looking at them as decades is the most fascinating for me. Uh, just the story of the company in general, um, especially, you know, just just getting off the ground with the full length features and, kind of, you know, the back and forth with, you know, Disney kind of wanting to go into some live action stuff and RKO maybe trying to reel them back in. You know, the idea that when people hear Disney, they think cartoon and uh, the, the stuff that happened when World War Two came along. Um, and the, the companies questioning whether, you know, they could have guys being drafted into the war and guys working on stuff for the government and the, you know, training films and propaganda films and all that. So when they started putting out these package films uh, of the little shorts um, to, to just keep the company alive, you know, unfinished ideas from before everybody got busy with their World War II things. Yeah, Make Mine Music and uh, Fun and Fancy Free and and those. Yep, yeah, all of those. Yeah, so as I watched through these things, you know, I I was investigating along the way to find out these sorts of things. Um, And I see stuff pop up in the list like Victory Through Air Power, which was the weirdest thing to be considered a theatrical Disney release. It is basically an informational film designed to persuade the government to change its combat strategies in the war. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, those 40s, uh, there was so much going on at the Disney studio. You had potential strikes, and you had World War II, and you had um, so many financial problems for the studio. Yeah, you had DeFuhrer's face, and and uh, there were some really, really out-there films uh, during that time period. They were doing what they do well and also, you know, criticizing the Nazi way of life. Mm-hmm. And it was it's amazing to get a hold of that and even just to know it exists. But as far as the films are concerned, um, my favorites are not necessarily shared by many. And you'll find this a lot along the way. Uh, many of the things that jumped out at me as a 45 year old um, may not be what jumps out at everybody else, but of those anthology, the package films, uh, Make Mine Music, I think it was kind of the Fantasia of pop music. Uh, and I'm not really a Fantasia guy. I know that is a cool uh, artistic presentation, but it doesn't do much for me as a film. The things that I'm drawn to uh, in Make Mine Music really, you know, just excited me. And the segments that they put together for that are just really creative. The hybrids, the the two animation and live action experiments at that point, uh, Song of the South, 
um, so dear to my heart, which I didn't know existed until then. I'd heard the Burl Ives, uh, Lavender Blue, Dilly Dilly, but I didn't know. And that movie is really cool. And it sort of is the prototype for what's to come as far as Walt Disney's nostalgia factor, you know, this fascination with early America and frontier Midwest, life. Midwest, yeah. Yeah, and so, and I, you know, learned after the fact that a lot of that was patterned after his own mm-hmm. memories, and and so, yeah, I liked that. Um, Song of the South, of course, is a mixed bag. Uh, I grew up in the South, so I saw that in one of its theatrical re-releases, which would have been 1980, 1986, one of those, um, I don't remember. But so I've kind of had a love-hate relationship with that movie through the years. Uh, it was funny. I started putting my little mini reviews on a Disney Plus Facebook page beyond just putting it on my own. And I found out real quick, you can't talk about Song of the South at all. Like you just can't mention it. <laughs> because <laughs> so of the backlash? Or... Yeah, yeah, just yeah, the yeah. controversy yeah. and I guess they as moderators don't like to deal with it. So (laughs) they just say hush hush on that one. So I was a little snarky, like I pulled it, but then I said something like, you know, film number, whatever, nothing to see here, move along. You know, that's what's so cool too. As I was making this journey as well, like you, I was doing research, not only on the films, you know, the directors at the time, but what was going on at the studio. So you get to see a Bobby Driscoll in a bunch of films and you get to see all the same actors as they're growing up and coming into their own and knowing what's happening, not only at the studio, but around the world, um, has a big impact on, on what you're learning as you go. Yeah. And I really appreciated when Disney Plus would include in the extras some mm-hmm. documentary type stuff. From I know the DVDs, for sure. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of that was new to me. I remember we'll get to Sleeping Beauty. That's one of the ones that I remember very specifically watching a pretty long documentary after. I think Snow White, they had one in for that as well. Um, learning a lot more about the process of the animation, um, which also, by the way, uh, brings me to The Reluctant Dragon from the 40s uh it's a it's a little um you know staged but their ability in that film to walk you through the different departments yeah it's a tour of the the studio mm -hmm. yeah to see how they made that happen there's a lot of things i had never really explored when it came to the process and that makes me appreciate those films a lot more my issue with some of that early uh full-length animation is that it's a lot of just not as good storytelling as they'll eventually get to. I'm so much a product of my high school and college years when it was that renaissance mm-hmm. of Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Lion King. Like Those are some of my favorite movies of all time. And I feel like the musical format is awesome. And even though those early films have songs in them, they're not musicals. And I just love how that tells a story more than these early ones, like with When You Wish Upon a Star. I thought Pinocchio was great. I thought that song was underused. It's like a bookend, but it's not That's interesting. Yeah, I never thought of it that way, but that is interesting, Um, especially in those package films. Those, you're right, they underutilize the music uh, in in a lot of ways. But then you get into uh, some of those later, Cinderella, I thought, did a great job with, with its music. Uh, with its interludes. Um, so 
as you drift into the 50s, you get into uh, some of their live action, more live action films. And they, in fact, I believe wasn't, uh, yeah, Treasure Island is their first all live action film. And that's right at the start of the decade. And they had to produce a lot of those movies in London, in England post-World War II and keep the money there. So they kept producing more, more films there for those audiences. And you had Robin Hood and The Sword and the Rose and Rob Roy, Highland Rogue. All these films that I found as I was, as I was going through, I wasn't as big of a fan of, uh, of some of those because they seemed very similar. But Walt knew what he was doing. He was building up his audience over there. He had to use the money there. And he knew that he could eventually pull that money back and, and start producing other things back home as well. Yeah, and I think when those British productions came my way, I don't have a lot of things outside of the Mouse House to compare those to. So I don't have this knowledge of the swashbuckling classics and all of that. So I was sort of coming at that genre really through these. And I was entertained by Treasure Island, Robin Hood especially, Sword in the Rose. It kind of started going down from, from yeah. that. I'm not... I'm not big on Rob Roy. Once we get to kidnapped, I hated that one. (laughs) Um, But yeah, and what's interesting to me in the 50s is they double their output. There was 14 films, if I'm correct, in the 40s, or 28 in the 50s. So, And then they're going to do that again in the 60s, going up to about twice as many as they did in the 50s. So they're really, you know pushing those films out at a, an amazing rate. I find the 50s to be equally fascinating. The True Life Adventure stuff started then. Uh, I was not that interested in nature documentaries, but as soon as I started my first one, I'm like, okay, this is going to be pretty fun. And they have their cheesy little moments, you know, yeah. where they coordinate the the bobbing of the animals to some cute song yeah but don't do too much research on part, those <laughs> yeah some of those yeah, are shot in studios and, yeah. <laughs> yeah i don't uh i don't i'm not always comfortable even in the uh scripted stuff with how the animals yeah. are being yeah. used so yeah. but yeah the the animation of the 50s i think gets better uh my daughter was really into cinderella so that's literally the only movie i skipped in this because I watched it daily for years <laughs> when she was younger. So I have that one about memorized. Uh, but Alice in Wonderland, I had not watched that as a kid. I think that is an amazing film. Uh, I've read some of the criticism and some of the, you know, there was a lot of different people doing different things. And some people feel like it's a little much and a little segmented, but I, I dug it. I thought it was really cool. The segments uh, lend itself to almost an attraction. I feel like you're going from room to room, you know? They are very short stories all stitched together, but I always enjoyed it as a kid. It did not do well, and Walt wasn't a big fan, but um, I I think it's it's underappreciated in the 50s and more appreciated as time goes on. Well, and with me, I can't really compare it to the book, so I don't have that critique so I never read it. All I knew as a kid is I was creeped out by that Tom Petty video where, <laughs> you know, don't that, come that around me here. Off no, from, no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you've got 20,000 leagues. You've got Davy Crockett. Any surprises that highlight the decade for you? 
Yeah, so the 50s included two of my favorites from this entire project, uh, films I'd never heard of. One was The Great Locomotive Chase, mm -hmm. uh, 1956, and the other was Third Man on the Mountain from 59. So Great Locomotive Chase was premiered in Marceline at the theater, the Uptown Theater, where uh, we, we I stayed with my wife. Uh, it's a uh, bed and breakfast now. Um, but yeah, very cool. Walt came back for that. Walt and his brother. And then Third Man on the Mountain inspired the Matterhorn. Wonderful right. movie. And we had just recently been to Disneyland for the first time. We did not ride the bobsleds, but uh, it's such an iconic part of that park. And so when I saw that was the inspiration, I'm like, well, that's great because I love this film now. So in both of those cases, I really just think it's great storytelling uh, with, you know, with Great Locomotive Chase, you've got this historically based tale that you know leads to this great epic kind of hero finale that i wasn't expecting um same with third man on the mountain there's this kind of self-sacrificial uh you know kind of finale i want people to go watch the movie so i'm not going to give too much away yeah but. the great locomotive chase is a, is a civil war story i'd never heard of uh didn't know about and yeah third man on the mountain is is awesome great climax you're right you know, their, their cultural sensitivity ebbs and flows along the way, but I enjoyed that uh, Littlest Outlaw was shot entirely in Mexico with a bilingual cast. Uh, it was filmed in English and Spanish, so they could release it immediately into, you know, I didn't both know that. markets. Cool. I just found that out, you know, in my research, but it was a good film. It wasn't, you know, on the top of my list, but I just enjoyed seeing that. Uh, and at least at this point, you know, you've got the American Indians playing the, you know, Native American characters. You've got uh, a lot of sympathetic portrayals of them, which, again, I don't know the culture at the time, but I suspect that was somewhat of a of a bold move mm -hmm. at the time to put these stories out that show, you know, good and bad folks on both sides and not just, you know, savages versus the civilized. And, sure. We've got a little bit of nuance in the in the character developments there on both sides. You know, towards the end, you've got Shaggy Dog, which is going to hint at a lot of what's to come. Have any of you shown your children Old Yeller? Have anybody on this call? Not yet. <laughs> uh, John, I don't think I could get through Old Yeller yet again. So how could I subject my children to it? Oh, my gosh. Old... I want to show my kids so bad. <laughs> oh, I just... It's I don't such a wonderful strength. movie. The, the end, yes, is sad, but it's such a great film. That is one where I liked my mini review the best because I did it in only two sentences. I was a bit worried that this classic wouldn't live up to the hype, but it was a great experience and the best example so far of how Disney's infatuation with the daily grind of frontier living could be partnered with a heartwarming coming-of-age story. That sums it up perfectly. Two uh -huh. sentences. <laughs> uh, one of my other favorite reviews was, uh, here's a drinking game for this film. Take a sip every time a white man says you people in a condescending tone to a group of Native Americans. Was that, is that Tonka or what, what film is uh, that? Good, close, but it was, uh, I think it was The Bears and I. Okay. As we go into the 60s, we lose Walt in the middle of the decade. And for, to me, this is a very strong decade for films. I mean, obviously, you've got Mary Poppins near the top of the list, if not at the top of the list. You've got Swiss Family Robinson, but there are some, there are some, 
some hidden gems in here as well. What did what did you find? I'll reiterate, this is the decade of my favorites. Uh, the, the films I'm most familiar with are the classics for a reason. Uh, Mary Poppins is just so far above the pack for me. Uh, but really, this decade's about the three Ps, Poppins, Pollyanna, and Parent Trap. Those are my... Those are on my short list of all-time Disney favorites. Pollyanna really holds up. I watched it a couple of years ago, and I was just stunned by how well it's done and the acting and everything about it. Yes, so many things came together for that. The cast, the characters that were written so well, representing that good and looking for the good and the impact that she has on the town, and it's it's giving me chills just thinking yeah. about it. Mm-hmm. My Haley Mills fandom shows and that parent trap is also on that short list so good yeah can you can you convince my teenage daughter that that version is just so much better than what i had to watch the other night i mean i nothing against nothing against Lindsay lohan but i'm just saying oh my 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 two daughters uh 15 and almost 13 and they're both going on 35 and Haley mills oh you know she's 70 why why would i want to watch that one our girls don't even know the Lohan version exists. So. Good for you. Well, they found it on the Disney Channel, so I got I got I got suckered into that one. One of my favorite moments of the '60s is when her and uh, Dean Jones crosses uh, in that darn cat. I don't really oh, care yeah. that much about the movie, but just to see those two Disney icons two in the same film, I was just like, I can check that off my bucket list now. <laughs> what? Stuck out to me, uh, Miracle of the White Stallions. I had never heard of this movie. I was actually, I sat in on a virtual uh, talk from the Walt Disney Family Museum. This film completely blew me away. I did not know anything about it. And I walked away from it uh, learning about another true story from World War II. It was a great film. Yes, and that one gave me a conversation piece for my father-in-law because he is a horse person, and so I brought that movie up, and he knew about that style, and he had plenty of stuff to provide um, in our conversation about that. But yeah, to have a, a, a World War II movie based around you know protecting this group of horses, it was it, it sounds like it would be odd, but I yeah, that was one. I think that was one of, of several that I saw as kind of changing up the formula of storytelling. Uh, I had several in there that were just the plots or the concepts were outside of the box. Uh, Almost Angels with the Vienna Boys Choir, uh, White Stallions, um, Moon Spinners being kind of a Hitchcock. I was going to ask about that one, yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, Haley Mills kind of got to be a little more grown up in that too. Um, one that I didn't see coming was the one and only genuine original family band. You know, we're in these hot political polarized times and I'm trying to find some, you know, just mindless entertainment. And I put in this movie I'm going to think is a musical about whatever. And it ends up being about these polarizing political times (laughs) just in the past. So I'm like, this is stressing me out. <laughs> <laughs> History repeats. How about like The Happiest Millionaire? I mean, this was a film that they put a lot into and it was supposed to be the next Mary Poppins. And, you know, it obviously didn't reach that height, but the music is wonderful for it. And uh, you've got some legends in there as well. Yeah, that's really on my uh, short list of the ones that got me excited in the 60s. 
I feel like that's the only movie I watched that at the end I immediately wanted to watch again. Yes. Hmm. It's, I know exactly. it's a mess. <laughs> and I mean, there was a lot of things that I could have been critical about. It, it needed a little more editing. It was really long. Some of the storylines I could have done without or at least reduced. Um, but then once I found out afterwards that a lot of that stuff was so real, like the, the having, you know, crocodiles or alligators for pets. Um, like I didn't even know it was based on anybody from real life anyway, but, um, yeah, I was drawn into that. I love, uh, the, you know, the meat cute and dancing outside and, you know, miss whoever that was, miss Scarlet from clue. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I see these familiar faces along the way. I'm like, Hey, there's a young Jessica Tandy. Hey, there's uh, the guy from that's incredible. You know, I, whatever my cultural connections are through these, through these different films. Uh, so yeah, seeing the, the lady from clue and the guy from that's incredible uh, <laughs> dancing outside was really cool. It, you know, I just, I look at this decade and it's just so many wonderful hit after hit. Uh, Follow me boys. I remember getting choked up when I watched that one. The end of that film is great. The ugly dachshund is a funny movie. Lieutenant uh, Robin Caruso, USN. I believe that has Dick Van Dyke in it, right? Am I thinking? It does. Yeah. So, wonderful films and then when walt passes away I, I think a lot of the movies that he was still working on stretch past the decade and you get the wonderful love bug and some others in there too and then you finally start to get into the kurt russell era of disney leaving the 60s and going into the 70s outside of that once you get into the uh, early 70s i really had a hard time with some of those movies uh i like yeah, the comedies i do but i just think like they were struggling to find their way again in that decade. Yeah. Well, and let me put in something here that, uh, you know, you mentioned follow me boys, uh, in addition to being an awesome, you know, pre Mr. Holland's opus kind of, you know, tribute to dedicating your life to young people. That's obviously going to connect with me since I do that for a living, uh, not through the scouts, but through church youth work. Uh, I loved that film. It was, I didn't like everything that Fred McMurray was in for Disney, but I really liked that a lot. Um, but fun fact, it is one of, let's see, one, two, three, four, five. It's one of five exclamation point 60s Disney movies. It was the era of the exclamation point. Oh. You've got Bon Voyage, <laughs> That Darn Cat, Follow Me Boys, Monkeys Go Home, and finally Smith. <laughs> all of those ended with exclamation points i had not yeah. i never thought of that you Here's know your disney trivia for the night but one other thing before we get into the 70s a lot of people complain today that disney repeats itself too much and they produce too many sequels but let's not forget that walt himself produced uh, son of flubber savage sam was a sequel to old yeller um so walt was dipping his toe back into uh, you know, waters that he had swam in at one point. So uh, it, it's nothing new for the Disney company to take a hit and build off that hit with the same sure. property. I just want to make that point. I found one of the most bizarre moments uh, in the 60s, and that was watching Babes in Toyland. <laughs> and for that to be the musical that comes before Mary Poppins. This is a touchy subject. I'm just telling you, this is a touchy yeah. subject here for, for one of our members. I adore Babes in Toyland. Really? I just, I didn't 
dislike it. It was just like a, a like I couldn't look away, and I wondered if somebody had put something in my drink. <laughs> because and now, like I've watched movies now, like Tommy and uh, The Wall and <laughs> Rocky Horror, and like I'd put that in that category of just like what is going on right now. <laughs> I like how Sean, how you described what you liked about it. That opening scene, that you know, that uh, that stage setting, that kind setting of setting the stage. You. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm with you there, absolutely. Like that reveal uh, mm-hmm. at the beginning is super cool. Yeah, uh, those Callaways. I think the the storytelling in that one was really cool. Um, there were plenty of other movies kind of like it, but I really feel like they they nailed it with that one as far as the character development and just kind of pacing it well. Um, But one of the ones that I and the critics really disagreed on was 10 Who Dared. Oh, yeah. It is, as far as my research showed, the most critically panned of the bunch. Uh, But it's about these explorers who are charting basically the Grand Canyon. Um, And, you know, it could have been better, but I I was drawn into... Uh, the attempt at least to develop this bigger ensemble cast uh, and take them on this journey. And, you know, some of them get mad at the other ones and uh, get a little too hot headed along the way. And they have to work out these personal conflicts. And, uh, you know, by the end, they even make separate decisions on how to finish out the journey. I really just approached every single one of these with, am I drawn into it? Am I entertained? Right. You know, I don't look at, at, cinematography and editing and lighting and all those sorts of things, unless they do it horribly. And then I notice, but (laughs) if it's not distracting me from a good story and good characters, then you did a great job. And that's something I wanted to ask you. You're talking about, I think some of your analysis now, Um, you know, you have watched hours upon hours. Are there two or three categories you're trying to judge them all by? I mean, you said, you know, if something sticks out to you, fine, but what, you know, I, I haven't, you know, full disclosure, I haven't seen um, some of you, you know, a lot of your uh, reviews. And if you want to share where we can see those, please do as part of our discussion here. But what categories are you breaking these down into? Because, you know, if I want to know what Tim thinks about this category, you know, that may line up with something that would interest me. Sure. Yeah. And and honestly, with with the brevity of my reviews, a lot of times I'm giving you very little as far as what uh, you'll find and much more about, you know, my emotional response or uh, snarky response as the case may be. Some of them I'm just like, yeah, I should have used these two hours a little differently. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But there's uh, really not anything I've done other than list them chronologically and kind of leave, leave the, uh, the categorizing to, to the discerning potential viewer. Did you watch them, try to watch them in sequential order as well? More or less. I believe that I was at the mercy of how they came in at the library in certain cases. What has been the hardest to find, hardest to track down? Well, my, what would have been grand finale, uh, a film that is listed on Wikipedia as the last thing they did in the 70s, was where I was going to kind of come to a stopping point. And it is a movie that I justified not tracking down because it, oh, on this side of the pond, it was made for TV. And then in other regions, they released it in theaters. Um, and I got to find... The Omega Connection. There you go. Yeah. Uh, some, some places it's the Omega Connection, some it's the London Connection. But 
I could not find it. Um, my person that I check in with on YouTube, Jess Lambert, that's attempting to watch like every single thing, like made for TV, theatrical, whatever. She has a, a YouTube show called Every Disney Movie Ever. And I usually watch her reviews after each one. But uh, she, I think, finally got it somehow. But So if, if you were to wrap up the 70s, then um, I got through halfway and then I started to try to do the 80s. So now I have to flip back and forth because some of those are really rough in the early 70s. Um, were there what what was one thing that you kind of took from uh, something that I saw was a dramatic increase in production value, especially when you start trying to move the needle with a black hole and things like that. For that to be the last essentially one that I saw for now, uh, black hole just made me like extremely excited i mean it's not it's not perfect but it's so outside the box for them it's it seemed like a big risk it seemed ambitious um i liked it i could see you know that it might have been a response to things that were popular already uh be it as far back as 2001 but more recently as maybe star wars though i think they probably had the idea in place before star wars came out but um, it, it gave me more the the Doctor Who feel, maybe. Um, but yeah, I just, I really, I liked those ones that may not have fired on all cylinders, but they really connected with me for some reason, and that's that's a big one. Um, another one from the 70s that I just thought was bonkers in, in many ways, uh, but I still liked was Napoleon and Samantha. Oh, Yeah. The idea that Jodie Foster, I believe, is mauled by yeah. <laughs> this lion during the, the filming. In real Character life, by the death. way, guys. I mean, she yes, she had yes. a scar <laughs> for the rest of her life, yeah. Hmm. And a stomach. great fear of cats in all ways, yeah. too. So, yeah, and that, like, finding that out afterwards was just, that messed me up a little bit. Um, <laughs> you know, these kids are going on an adventure with a, with a secondhand circus lion. Um, there's a family member's death that is just brutal like like beyond bambi's mom brutal uh mm. and it's it's addressed in such a unique way in that film and then they you know they have to talk this grown-up into helping them kind of cover it up and mm -hmm. it's just really like i didn't know what i was getting into with napoleon and samantha with me uh i was really looking forward to the stuff that don knotts and tim conway mm -hmm. were going to be in either together or separately um, not as big a fan of those as I thought really? I would be. I, I love them and they're great, but a lot of the times they're just kind of sprinkled into those movies. Um, yeah, and then not enough. Not, yeah, like even with Gus, Don Knotts was a little more front and center, but I just thought Gus was world's greatest athletes <laughs> jokes so recycled. Movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so for me, like world's greatest athlete is the the pinnacle of <laughs> You know, the, the the sports humor and they really, I don't know why, but that one is just, I'm so fond of You're right, of, though. As, as much as I love the Apple Dumpling, Apple Dumpling Gang movies, they could have been in it more. Yeah, and I like Apple Dumpling Gang, but for a lot of reasons that didn't involve the two of them. Um, also in the 70s for me, the songs in many cases would trump the movies, uh, I wasn't familiar with Age of Not Believing and mm. Bed Knobs and Broomsticks. I love that song. It might now be one of my favorite Disney songs, especially just the themes that it's getting at 
um, Candle in the Water from Pete's Dragon. I knew that song from probably a, an album or a Greatest Hits CD of Disney stuff. I think that, that I had, was uh, nominated for Best Song, I think. That wouldn't surprise me, yeah. yeah. Um, and then to hear uh, John Denver's Sweet Surrender in the beginning of uh, The Bears and I, and then to find <laughs> out that it was really written for that movie and not just, hey, they paid money for a hit that was a cool song. Um, my my all-time, I'll backtrack though, my all-time favorite music moment was turning on Monkey's Uncle and seeing the Beach Boys yeah. in person. I am a huge Beach Boys fan. I knew that song. I knew it was coming. Did not know they actually appeared in the film. Another so. sequel, uh, by the way, from uh, yes, yes. Misadventures of Merlin Jones. I love those movies. Annette yes. is great in them. There were several, several stories in the 70s that I thought were just really well done as far as nuance, storytelling. Uh, the Littlest Horse Thieves, uh, you know, the down in the, the mines, uh, just the setting, the characters, all of that was was really uh, one that I loved. Um, the Wild Country uh, with uh, Ron and his brother Clint Howard. Oh, yeah, uh, I forgot about kid. that. Yeah. Uh, the Wild Country was so uh, like realistic in its portrayal of frontier life and the hardships. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the things that were kind of glossed over in a lot of the other Disney films, uh, you couldn't just always, you know, solve life by doing all the chores and, um, you know, sending mom to the kitchen and all that. Like it was very brutal in that film. And then in a very rare instance, a major character kills someone. I mean, it's in defense, but still like that was a huge deal. Um, and then just the, the awesomeness of having Ron Howard in, in, in the film as well. Yeah. Post, uh, Andy Griffith and, uh, yes. Pre, uh, Happy days. Happy days. I did like uh, Ride a Wild Pony, uh, a very interesting story about uh, these two kids who claim ownership of this pony. Uh, one is kind of the, the poor kid uh, that lives out in the country, and the other one is the more refined uh, you know, town girl, but she has a physical disability. She's in a wheelchair, and so you have two very, um, you know, uh, characters that you can feel sympathetic for that you don't really know where they're going to go with it. Like they both have legitimate claim over this animal and the way they resolve it is great. Uh, and I just, I was really drawn in by that one. Uh, there were some cool like travel uh, adventure kind of stories in the seventies. I thought they weren't perfect, but uh, Island at the top of the world, treasure of Matacumbe, um, And even on a more simpler you know, travel uh, scale, One Little Indian uh, with James Garner. Uh, I, there was one I hated in the 70s. Uh, one of our dinosaurs is missing. Oh, yeah. uh, mostly because all of the Asian characters were portrayed very stereotypically by British uh, white guys. So I, I wasn't cool with that. It was very, very distracting. <laughs> uh, I was disappointed in the Witch Mountain movies. Uh, I want that middle movie that is actually... At Witch Mountain, <laughs> I don't want to go see what's going on before you get there or after you've been there. I want to be on Witch Mountain, please. <laughs> I loved those movies as a kid, though. Also, Freaky Friday, I didn't like this time around. Uh, I thought it was a little, a little cringy. Now that's uh, one where I think the Lindsay Lohan version is better than the '70s version. 
I agree. Yeah. yeah. North Avenue Irregulars totally snuck up on me. Once I posted about that, several of my friends said, oh, yeah, I've been watching oh, yeah. that movie forever. Uh, mm. I totally, it was off my radar until this project. Uh, it's even about church stuff, so I'm surprised that, you know, I didn't already know the movie, but uh, a great, you know, nuanced cast of females that help, you know, s- solve this crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really cool. Uh, everything works in that movie for me. I thought it was really original. Uh, the 70s was a decade of fun females. You got Sandy Duncan, Angela Lansbury, Cloris Leachman. Uh, they're, they're Jodie the Foster. Ladies that were, yeah, Jodie Foster. All the ladies that were popping up in those were, mm-hmm. I was a big fan of them. So as you get ready to watch the 1980s, I'm sure uh, you remember some of these movies as a kid. And uh, I, I can tell you that a lot of their live actions are kind of forgettable. Uh, you know, they were more known for their um, their animated films in the 80s. And then, of course, you know, Little Mermaid closes out that decade. Now, as you get into the 80s, are you going to stick with the Walt Disney Studio-only releases, or are you going to be touching on any of the, you know, the subsidiary labels like Touchstone and things like that? That is a great question. It is not <laughs> one I've answered yet. <laughs> I know that those are good films, and I know a lot of those Touchstone films, especially. There are so many, though. Yeah, in that's the 80s my problem. and 90s, so many. But the ones that are the ones that are true to just the Disney output are far less. So I think that seems doable yeah. <laughs> right now mm-hmm. for me, at least. So. Yeah, and and again, getting into that decade, they were struggling. Uh, Ron Miller was trying to trying whatever he could, and so that's why they created Touchstone and Splash was their first film, and what a hit to start everything with. It, it's interesting. I love looking at the history as as you continue to uh, watch these. It's great. We're gonna have to have well, you back. Absolutely. I have not found too many people to talk about all this with, so this has really been fun. I think there are a lot of Disney students out there, and they want to learn more about the history of the company, and no better way to do it than watching all the films, for sure. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. This was awesome. I could talk Disney movies for days. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I certainly enjoyed this, and I hope that uh, maybe people were taking notes as they listen to these titles and uh, are going to go out and find them. There's certainly uh, a lot of stuff to find that's really going to be worth your time. Hidden treasures. If you'd like to follow Tim as he continues his Disney movie journey, you can read his blog, the EUCC Youth Guy blog, at euccyouthguy.wordpress.com. Thanks for listening this week. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss a show. And leave us a rating and review if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts. Have a great week, everyone. We're glad you could join us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email or send us a recorded audio message at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. Find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Hyperion Hub is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or its subsidiaries. We'll meet you next time at the Hyperion Hub.